Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed last week's conversation. Let's get started with part two. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Well, I think this is a good opportunity to pivot from the 35,000 foot discussion, the global discussion, to more of the five-foot discussion, the boots on the ground, some of the issues that we deal with in veterinary medicine, more on the companion animal now. Now, Puerto Rico has a, a very diverse population economically. You have, as most communities do, the haves and the have-nots. And I don't know anything about your practice. I don't know where it's located on the island, but Part of the discussions that are a sequelae to what we've actually just been talking about is the cost of care and trying to maintain an affordable cost of care in, in an increasingly escalating, more expensive profession to deliver care. What are you noticing in Puerto Rico, because that's where you work, and what are you hearing nationally about consumers and cost of care and um, what kind of challenges maybe are you dealing with in even your own practice on the cost of care level? Yeah, definitely. Living in Puerto Rico, if you think it's hard practicing in the mainland, it's even harder here uh, because everything, everything costs more, not just the electricity and the water, like I mentioned before, but the goods, the medicine, the shampoos, the the supplies that we need, you know, probably Hawaii and Puerto Rico is where the it's the most expensive to get stuff to, you know, it's depending on the carrier, many times the charges for transporting to Puerto Rico are, are crazy, especially when it when it's something heavy. So that together with the economic problems and and you know the the salaries of people here are not what they are in the U.S. So it's a double whammy and and it's hard. So we can't charge what most people charge in in the U.S. I mean maybe we can I can compare myself to to some of the rural areas of of the South or or some parts of the U.S. You know with more having more economic problems or or people that that you know have smaller salaries than, than some of the biggest cities you know the biggest cities we can compare to probably on the cost our prices here are probably what they are would be in LA for you guys it's sometimes it's ridiculous you know to to go to to a place and and you know and have a have a meal but the same thing happens with veterinary medicine on the cost and, and it's hard it's hard because we come, we come back to Puerto Rico, you know, because we want to make a difference because we, we love Puerto Rico uh, and it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, I, I, I work probably a lot more hours than I need to, uh, to off balance some of that, pay my technicians very well compared to maybe to other veterans, but I still don't pay them enough in my mind. And that's something that has to, We've talked about a lot, and I think that's something that as a profession as a whole, we need to improve uh, because we need to utilize veterinary uh, technicians better, but you know, we also need to pay them better because if not, they're going to go work at Burger King 
because they're paying $15 an hour. And, and it's complicated because, you know, you have to make make meets ends and, and produce enough to, to do that. And I think my, the attractiveness to me and, and in my hospital is, is the culture of my hospital. And and I think, you know, I've, I lost a few technicians past year, but I was lucky to interview many and they know of my hospital. They, they know of the culture. They know of me. And, and I was able to hire, you know, three great new technicians. Uh, but it's not easy. It's not easy. We, we I see a lot of uh, colleagues uh, looking for technicians and, and they can't find any. And just like it's happening in the States and it's tough. We talk about utilizing them better. And, you know, so we are more efficient and, and that I think that can also, you know, help offset a lot of the the shortage with veterinarians because we could be practicing the veterinary medicine when sometimes we are doing other things that we shouldn't be doing. But I think in Puerto Rico, it's, we, we have several veterinary technician schools. Uh, we have a four-year degree that we call technologists here. And then we have the two-year programs that are technicians. And then we have the veterinary assistants. So we have a good pool of, of, of applicants, but a lot of them are graduating and after a year or something, they, they they leave the profession and go somewhere, especially after COVID. It really got exacerbated with COVID. So we're seeing the same things that 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 you guys are seeing in the mainland. And, but we're trying hard. And I think that most people want to make a difference and 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 want to to pay more and and want to become more efficient practice owners, but it's not easy. We see a lot of shortages too. I don't know if that's happening. A lot of shortages with medications and stuff that just keep on coming. And that's also frustrating with uh, as a practitioner. Yeah. Are you uh, getting any pushback from your clients about your costs? I mean, inflationary aspects of veterinary medicine trickle down to the consumer. So I'm, I'm going to ask you the question, whether you're seeing it in your practice and then what um, what are you hearing uh, through AVMA from consumers generally? Is the there's a, veterinary practices were extremely busy during COVID, and many practices for cost of living reasons, uh, staff reasons, as you've noted, and and other inflationary reasons, increased fees, cost of care went up. Are you seeing pushback in terms of people declining services, maybe economic euthanasias in Puerto Rico? And what is the general feeling in this country about where things stand at a cost of care, from a cost of care standpoint? Yeah, I definitely have seen in here more, the talk. Where my hospital is, is pretty close to where I live. It's a, it's a nice area. I would say 80% of my clients are pretty affluent. And the other 20% could come from, you know, lower income areas. You know, I've had to, you know, help some of those and, you know, whether it's discounts or senior discounts or, you know, I try to help as much as I can, but definitely I've seen more comments about people that never would ask for an estimate, asking for estimates before it was like, oh, whatever you need, doctor, do you do as long as the, the, the animal needs to be hospitalized, whatever you think is needs to be done we do now i'm saying oh let's 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 do this first you know talking to other colleagues here in puerto rico it's the same we were really busy you know during the pandemic but we still saw people you know commenting on the fees and and some other things that that we're talking about so yeah i i think one 
doesn't upset the other. I think just because we were busy, the talk, the talk was there, and we understand. I mean, and it's the same. Yeah, I know a lot of friends, you know, that lost jobs. I know a lot of friends that maybe they cut, they cut a little bit of the hours, and you know, they used to go out to eat a couple of times to a, a week to a nice restaurant. Now they don't. So I, I think that society as a whole had to make some adjustments, and probably more here in Puerto Rico because. On top of the COVID and the earthquakes that we had, we had an economic crisis and it, it really, it was like a, a triple whammy between all those three things. And hopefully we're starting to come out of this and now we need to become more efficient as a country and help bring people here. The other day I was at BMX and I happened to be meeting with BI and at the other meeting, I asked permission to Lori to, to thank BI about investing in Puerto Rico because I love most of the hard guard, most of the next guard is being built in made in Puerto Rico, but they just expanded one of the plants and spent fifty million dollars to to produce more. So I told them, you know, whatever you need, I can help you. I know people in the government, but we need people to invest in Puerto Rico because you know we need to get out of this uh, recession and and hopefully look forward to that. And you know, it's gonna take. I think it's gonna take ten years because I think it a lot of our problems have to do with the power grid and, and how it got destructed with Maria. And it's an $18 billion, 10-year project. And hopefully once that's finished, you know, a lot of companies will start investing again in Puerto Rico. We're the door to Latin America. A lot of American companies like to come here because from here they can go to Latin America or to, you know, Spain, Spanish-speaking countries anywhere. So it's always been a great economy with great accent, uh, tax incentives. You got you don't have to pay as much as you have to pay somebody, you know, to go to work at a pharmaceutical. We have a, most of the pharmaceutical companies are based here, uh, but we lost some of the generics years ago to to India and to China, and now we're seeing some of the problems. The quality control in India and in China is not nothing like being in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. We have the same you know, standards of quality control. And so I try to use those times for, for also, I think it's important for, you know, to help my country or Commonwealth right now. I gotta be sincere. I would like for Puerto Rico to become a state. I think it would be the best thing for us right now. We're, we don't get the benefits. We, we get to pay taxes, social security, Medicare, but we don't get the same benefits as a state does. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I also support statehood for Puerto Rico for a number of reasons, probably most important because of equity and treatment of our citizens. But I'm going to ask you a number of questions, uh, a sequence of questions here. Tell our listeners why you became interested in organized veterinary medicine and ultimately becoming president of AVMA. And was and when you became president, was it what you expected it to be? So I think I sort of spoke a little bit about this earlier. I think it started with my dad and, and his interest and, and involvement with human organized medicine. I saw that he attended meetings and he enjoyed it. I saw the camaraderie with his colleagues. It was also a family environment, you know, the Puerto Rico Medical Association meetings. You know, A lot of the, the kids that I met at that age are now my friends nowadays, are still my friends to the day. And, and then he got involved. He was a delegate for the AMA and he enjoyed it. We didn't, we didn't talk the, to the detail of, of issues, but, you know, there was also always a, the conversation about medicine in my house was always there. 
And I think when I combine that with my grandfather being a farmer and having, he had all, all the farm animals that you can think of. A controversial thing I might throw there, he, he raised bull, bulls for bullfightings. Uh, but, you know, he was from Salamanca, an area of, of Castile, uh, where bullfighting is huge still. And, you know, that was part of, of, of what he did. And, and he was very proud. And I have posters of, of you know, with the famous bullfighters. Uh, my first communion in Spain was with all the famous bullfighters of the time. So, you know, I, I, so, I, I saw the bullfighting as an art once I started thinking as a veterinarian and thinking about, you know, animal suffering. It was, you know, I have this, this conflict. Conflict in my mind. Uh, I, I saw the beauty of it, but now I understand more in depth, you know, the suffering of the bulls and all that. So it's it, it's hard, but but that as a whole, I think that the combination of my dad's uh, involvement with AMA. I lived in Puerto Rico during the year, and the three months of the summer I lived in Spain, and for three months I would go to the farm and I would have to wake up at five or four thirty you know, have breakfast and, and go hit the farm with my grandfather. And I loved it. And I was the only one. My brother didn't do that. My sister didn't do that. You know, it's something that I thoroughly enjoyed and and, and definitely woke up that that interest in, in me of getting involved with veterinary medicine and then combined with my father's involvement, got me more involved with organized veterinary medicine. As far as you, the second part of the question of when I became AVMA president, you know, it, I, I would say yes, it was, it was that and more of what I expected. I've, I've enjoyed my time with the AVMA, you know, aside from the travel and, you know, getting to know my peers, which I really enjoy, but but working on the issues, working with a, the, an incredible staff that we have at AVMA that I'm just awed at, uh, you know, whether we're talking about animal welfare or we're talking about economics or we're talking about our, our team in, in DC led by Dr. McClure, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, it inspires me to do, to, to keep on trucking and, and, and fight for this profession, but it's been a great year. But one thing that I really, you know, enjoy when I, when I meet my peers is, is, is talking and, and, and listening more importantly. And I think that was a big part of, of my job last year as AVMA president is to listen and bring that to the AVMA and, I realized, you know, whether I was in Puerto Rico or I was in in a meeting in, in Europe or in Louisiana, you know, which is my second home, the problems are the same, you know, whether it's workforce issues, wellness issues, DEI issues. We're, we have a, a lot of good people trying to make a difference and trying to find with, come up with solutions to to solve some of the problems that we are facing. But it was it was incredible to to go around the country and and in a, in, a, in a few countries that I got to visit and and talk to them about veterinary medicine and and the camaraderie and you know that I have friends all over the world now that that I can say they're truly my friends and that I keep in touch with on a regular basis and you know we see each other and it's like that we've known each other all our lives and I think it's that work that we've done together and those those times we spent together. So no, it, it was a great experience and I would definitely recommend anybody that's involved or has an interest in, in getting involved in veterinary medicine and organized veterinary medicine to do so. You don't have to be become AVMA president 
You can do it at your county. You can do it at your state level. You can do it in the whole U.S. or even internationally. It's it's a good feeling. I, I love to give back to the profession, but I, I get more than what I give, I think, you know, because I thoroughly enjoy doing what I'm doing. And, you know, hopefully I'll find some some other things to do in the next few years. So being in your third year of AVMA leadership mm -hmm. and delving into all of the issues, I mean, we, we've, we've only touched on a smattering of the issues that that generally come up at conventions and 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 in and, and HOD, et cetera. What do you recognize as the top three issues for veterinary medicine? Well, I have to put the economic student debt and the economic woes on top because those, I think, are probably the cause of some of the the other issues that we're dealing with. Well-being is, is is probably another one that's you know definitely very important, and everywhere I go, it's it's up there and 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 it's one of the main topics of discussion and. Well, we're doing much better, but I, but I think until we solve some of these economic woes, that the, the well-being is going to be affected of our of, of our technicians, of our veterinarians, of, of us, of you and me, and and it's something that that really concerns me. You know, a lot of people want to compare generations and whether you know when when you or Peter or, or I were young and you know basically our parents both you know life is tough. Deal with it. <laughs> and now the the generations think otherwise, and they 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 don't want to work, you know, sixty hour weeks like we did, or even hundred hour weeks that we did many times. And we want to criticize them for not wanting to, to 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 put the work. But no, I I think they're more more intelligent than we are, and we just have to come up with a the model has to change. You know, the, I think the model has to change at the veterinary school level. The model has to change. At the practice level, and I don't know what that new model is gonna be, but we gotta work hard on on changing it because we gotta continue to serve the public and our patients, and whether we have more people, you know, work part time, to, uh, we have a, a much higher, bigger workforce. I don't know, but definitely the model that that we, you and I, and and Peter have been used to is not gonna work in the future. So uh, you got one more. You gave me two. Ec 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 economics and well-being. And the third one? Well, I'm Puerto Rican. Hispanic. DEI ah. has to be up there. Uh, and I think it's everywhere. Here, it's different. You know, DEI, when I, when I went to Europe in some of those places, I think it's still more about men and women versus races and religions and sexual preference and all the other things. But it's something that I think we put a, a lot more emphasis on in the last couple of years. We've been talking about it for longer, but I think in the last couple of years, I think we're starting to turn the corner. Uh, I'm hoping the, that my work and the work of many in, in the, whether it was in the, in the joint AVMC, the AVMA, a commission, and now with Dr. Atoya at, at AVMA, uh, I think there's a lot of good things coming out. Uh, the journey for teams, I think, hopefully will be utilized, and I hope it's not something that that we just put out there and people don't 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 go and 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 take part of it, and and that's part of my job and the part of the of the leadership to continue to get people into into these programs and 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 realize you know how important this is
as a Hispanic veterinarian and, you know, who studied in Louisiana, you know, which is in the most open state sometimes or the most diverse <laughs> opinion wise. It is a very diverse state, but not, but there's still a lot of prejudice out there. I faced some, but I was shocked by, you know, how maybe even some of my friends that were also Puerto Rican, but were black and Puerto Rican faced a lot more you know, prejudice. So it's something that I continue to work with. Now I think a little bit more. When I was a young, you know, student at LSU, sometimes it made me mad and I got angry and I threatened some people for being prejudiced because we're talking about, about my friends. Now I think more and I, I and I can talk because of my knowledge, because of the, the training that I've gotten. But you still get I, mad, right? I still get mad, but I take a deep breath and talk and try to make a difference but i think we've gone a long way uh but we still have a long way to go but it's something that that would be my the, the third thing that for me in in that order probably uh just because one affects the other two i think i mean it's all three are super important it's hard to put them in order yes but I think as a profession the economic part is just it affects everybody and it makes worse the wellness programs and the dei program problems yeah, I, I don't know where to start. There's been so much meat in the last 15 minutes, and I'm a vegetarian. I don't even know where to start eating. Um, <laughs> that I'm not. I'm, I'm a veterinarian, not a vegetarian. Well, I'm, I'm I'm at home, so I'm a vegetarian. When I go out without Sharon, there's a whole other discussion. Oh, but, okay. uh, <laughs> but let's let's just work with your three issues in reverse order and start with DEI, because that's really some of where this conversation with Dr. Nelson and I started a couple of years ago. It, it's with the, the societal issues that we're dealing with. And we have colleagues like yourself and Dr. Nelson that have dealt directly with discrimination. And we have colleagues that seem to be in denial that it actually even exists. And so I've heard over the last couple of years from Phil stories of some of the challenges that he dealt with growing up in Mississippi. He heard some of the challenges I didn't have to deal with growing up in New York. But it has nothing to do with that, those bad football teams in Mississippi. They couldn't get anywhere, no. It had everything to do with that. <laughs> and, and it's a tough question to ask, but I think people need to hear stories. And I think that Phil's done a great job of sharing stories of some of the, the personal challenges that he's faced. And so if you're comfortable and would be willing to share some of the stories that you as a person of color have had to deal with that have made your climb more challenging. I think our leaders would like to hear that. And I think the profession needs to hear it as well. I, th I think I've experienced, you know, some prejudice in myself and, and, and I wasn't given the opportunity in several in instances that I, when I thought I, I had the, the same attributes, the same uh, preparation that others did for certain positions, for certain uh, programs. So that, that was really frustrating. And uh, as far as individuals, you know, call me call me names and stuff, you know, that doesn't bother me. I can offset those and, and ignore them because, you know, it's just ignorance and that doesn't get to me. You know, mostly it was drunk people in bars calling me, <laughs> calling me speak or something because I was probably talking to a, a pretty white girl and and they didn't think I I belonged there. But once I got into, 
involved with veterinary medicine and stuff. There, there were instances where I thought, you know, maybe, you know, be seen with a different light and or, or the same light, let's put it like that. And maybe not being seen as, you know, the last option or, or the second or third option. So, but I think people like Phil and I get involved in the, in this profession. I hope we're, we're making a difference and, and we're opening eyes on what we can contribute on whether, you know, you're black or you're Puerto Rican, Hispanic, Oriental, Dominican, wherever you're from. I, I, I have, I have friends from all over the world and some of the brightest people that I know can barely speak English with me and they they try they try their best and it's hard to understand and and that right there is a barrier for some of them especially when they move to the US and they they try to look for jobs or positions so you know we we have to continue the work and and keep removing barriers and 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 be better humans and be better people as a whole how frustrating is it and how do you handle deniers of the problem. I understand there there's a recent letter that came out of uh out of California from a California veterinarian who who essentially attacked uh, a leader in the DEI area and accused that leader of hate and selfishness uh with essentially hate language. But more more importantly to me, well I shouldn't say more important, but just as importantly promoted a narrative that said that this was a, sol a solution looking for a problem and that this isn't a problem and asserted that this discussion doesn't belong in veterinary medicine, that our job is to take care of animals and that's it. And everything else is irrelevant to veterinary medicine. How do you respond to that? I mean, to be honest, it, I think it's something that even at the AVMA level in the past, we didn't pay the importance that we needed to pay to the issue and because of you know new generations because of new people getting involved now we've put this to the level that is one of the most important issues that that the avma is leading with uh the veterinarian in in california that you were referring to is my friend she's an amazing woman not an amazing black woman or amazing dominican she's an amazing woman an amazing veterinarian that happened to work be with me in the in the commission in the AVMA uh, AVMC Joint Commission DI Commission, and I know her of her work or her work with possibilities. Uh, so you know, I would love to you know the my past the past Jose at LSU when I was a student would like have to kick his ass. Right now, I would love to sit down with him and have a chat and try to try to 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 make him comprehend the importance of DEI, the importance of, of our profession mimicking, you know, so clientele, the people we serve, and how important it is going into the future. I will have to say, even though I agree with you that that we've made progress, I don't have to be as as uh, politically adroit here when I say that in my opinion, the reason we did not embrace addressing the issue in our profession is because most of our profession didn't think or didn't want the issue addressed. And they didn't want the issue addressed because they agreed with this narrative. Now, as a man of color, I've heard applicants for the presidency of AVMA 
talk about diversity for almost 15 years now. I wish I could say 30 years, but I can't. 30 years ago, it wasn't even recognized verbally. But about 20 years ago, it became part of the message that we have to do something. Mm -hmm. But it only came from those who wanted to be president. Because once they became president, they could do very little because of the membership, because of the attitudes of the membership. Now, that is, cha that is changing. It may be changing because the demographics of the membership is changing. And recently, there seems to have been a foothold in this area. But we just we need to make sure we recognize how this change has occurred. But that doesn't mean that we have changed hearts. You made a comment about the discussion we have about, about generational differences and, and how they, they didn't have to walk uphill both ways in the snow like we did. Well, that same argument was presented in this letter too. That same argument was, you know, was, you know, veterinarians are supposed to build fabulous practices over 30 years and then retire essentially. And as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, what about government veterinarians? What about academic veterinarians? There are many roles for veterinarians. As a matter of fact, that the plurality for veterinarians is the strength of this profession. I guess I, I, I share your disappointment, dismay, and anger in response to this letter. But I also recognize, and I think with you, I've learned that this is a job for persuasion rather than angry reactions. Definitely. Right? And there were some true things said, uh, stated in that letter, but then they were taken out of context. And it was as if that privileged experience is the sole experience in veterinary medicine. And that is the danger that we have to face in, in terms of making that the predominant opinion of our profession. Yeah, I would agree with you in that, in that that's the way it was in the past. And to be honest, you know, the changes that have happened, at least at the AVMA level in the last few years, in the midst of a political climate that was not very helpful. Correct. Uh, Amaro, that it happened because we've seen a lot of sentiment that was that was probably there, but it was you know, hidden and, and quiet that came out. And and to make the strides that we have made in the DEI arena in the last couple of years, with all that political, you know, cloud or around us, I'm very happy and, and excited about. And this is just the beginning. I think it's, this is something that's here to stay. And how DEI can be helpful and even help people make more money. There's so many, so many different ways this could be helpful for for the profession, and it's something that ha had to happen when I when I go to the student the Savma uh, meetings and 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 hear their discussions on DEI and wellness. I I think we we have a bright future. So it's frustrating sometimes, but I, but I think we're we're on the right track, and and it's just gonna get better. I'm and I'm gonna I'm optimistic about it. I I won't say we'll stop it forever, but but I think there's always gonna be people like. That think we shouldn't get into the DI arena. That that that's none of our business. That that uh, this is the the profession is for everybody. But I think that that sentiment is gonna slowly you know decrease, and less and less people are gonna think like that because because they they're gonna realize uh, 
how important this this DI movement is and I, th I think it's a much more narrow argument that that is exactly what they say but they you know and and I'm and, and you can tell me if you if you shared the same experience but earlier early in my career if I whispered about an injustice or a inequity within the profession at a conference I was told that's not veterinary medicine if it doesn't have anything to do with veterinary medicine we don't talk about it which allows us essentially not to have to do any introspection of our own views uh, that might affect our profession and essentially says you know just do your job but but it's a finite caricature of a veterinarian that you're trying to fit in this particular instance a practitioner you know is the caricature that one must be in order to be a veterinarian and it is that lack of tolerance essentially uh or that narrow myopic vision that leads to uh ignoring the problem right and when you ignore the problem if you ignore that there are statutes in our laws that create an inequitable platform for certain demographics you're just allowing the problem to flourish there doesn't seem to be a pushback to talk about our economic problems. There's no pushback there. You know, everybody wants to improve our economic basis. And we recognize that we must accurately describe the problem before we can solve it. But when it comes to issues like well-being or DEI or issues that we are uncomfortable with, we'd rather just not talk about it. So, Bill, I think all three issues that Dr. Arce highlighted were issues that 25 years ago existed but weren't talked about. Economics escalated because it hit people in the pocketbook. Wellness was a sequelae to economic challenges. And DEI has become a topic because the world around us is changing in, in terms of awareness. Martin Luther King, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. We can't be silent any longer. Dr. Arce, you and I saw each other in Orlando at VMX with 27,000 other people in the veterinary family. They look like you, they look like Phil, they look like me. Walking through the, con the convention center, or maybe being pushed through by 27,000 other people, or at the bottlenecks, you didn't see people, you saw colleagues, you saw friends, you saw a community. The day I was leaving to come home is when I was shared this communication. And it was like, I was just in shock about the, the level of vitriol that was in that communication. And I didn't think we were past the issues, but I was hoping that maybe we were starting to understand and communicate them better. But I feel like we're, and, and Phil's gonna yell at me for saying this, I feel like we're back at square one and starting all over again in trying to deal with the issues of the fact that, you know, we really do need to consider people as people. 
the letter was so so belittling and so demeaning of an individual and their background and their efforts that I'm just like, oh my God, Phil, let's go back to June of 2020 when I gave you a call because I feel like I'm back there again, just starting to recognize that these issues need to be discussed. We can't be quiet any longer. And I'm not going to yell at you because I've done, because I've, I've, that doesn't help. But, and, and I also understand your frustration and you're just expressing your, your frustration. But I will remind you, as, as I've said often in our discussions, that progress is not linear. These, and that this expression of disagreement is just that. It was always there. You just heard it. Yeah. It has always been there. Your, your uh, disappointment is that it is as rigid as it was expressed. You you seem to say that you thought even that position should have progressed a little. But again, the hardness of the position was there is no problem. We won't recognize the issue. Then there is no progress there with that individual. And there are a number of individuals that refuse to recognize the issue. And that's our challenge. But Again, in a democracy or a plurality, as Dr. Arce said, all we can do is attempt to try to persuade. But it doesn't diminish our need, as you said, Peter, to, to speak out for what's right, to fight for equity, to fight for social justice, to fight for fairness in the system. So Dr. Arce, having been a president now, and you're about to end your term, what are you going to do next? How how are you going to continue to work for these on these three issues? The Dead Presidents Club is it still active? Yes, they they actually do have, and we we don't we don't meet except for a convention. But there's there's a couple of things down on the horizon. One of them with ABMA, another one hopefully with a another organization that has to do with veterinary medicine and other countries in the world but definitely you know I, I i will continue to to be involved with with this conversation and i think i can bring a lot to to the conversation and I, i'm still too young to to hang up the gloves i'll continue to help in puerto rico uh trying to help the governor here with some issues and and help with a stray population and trying to establish a registry so i, I have enough on my on my plate to continue to to help the profession, but DEI needs to be one of them, definitely. And even though we hear stories like the one we that happened in, in California, you know, this past week, I can see myself on, on the very first uh, AVMA House of Delegates that I went to 1999 and seeing the composition of, of the AVMA House of Delegates and seeing the composition of the AVMA House of Delegates today, you know, we've, we've come a long way. And hearing the issues and the discussions, the veterinary information forum, there's been a lot of progress, but we know we must not stop there. There's still a lot of work to be done, and I, hopefully I can be a part of it and continue to, to put my grain of salt to, to make this a, a better profession, a better world. Maybe I'll, I'll apply for, for a dean in California or something. There is a position open. I think I need a little more titles after my, my name for that. Nope. Nope. I want to go back and, and I just want to kind of tie things up a little bit more. Communication, change, 
I've been involved with organized veterinary medicine. I got became involved because John Hamill, who was uh, vice president or president-elect for the California VMA, I worked for him, and I watched him doing battle over the phone about issues in California. And then I got involved locally. I got involved regionally, the state level. And more recently, I've been involved with AVMA. But what I think I was a, a benefit of or beneficiary of was somebody involved with organized veterinary medicine who was willing to help others and not willing to, wanted to help others become involved and have a voice. You and I ran into each other at the VBMA national meeting in Orlando, a group of students who are focused on economics and trying to build a voice. There's a SAVMA group, student chapter, the AVMA group that wants to have a voice. I think if we're going to have change, it's a grassroots level and it starts at the students and it, it needs to be motivated by their first job. I think the people who they work for can truly help them get more involved. I think we've kind of lost some of that motivation to become involved with leadership because of not everybody in hospital is a leader. Not everybody's involved with organized veterinary medicine. So here's my charge to you. You have an audience, all eight people that listen to our podcast. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, it's only six. Oh, shoot. I, I guess Sharon's not listening anymore. Um, <laughs> you have an audience, some of whom are students. Tell them why it is so important to not sit quietly, but to get involved and be heard and to have a voice so that they can make change. It's a no-brainer for me. We have to get involved in our profession. If we don't, somebody else is going to make decisions for us. Veterinary medicine is always going to be facing issues, challenges in the future. And we need to be there to defend our profession, to inform others of, of the importance of veterinary medicine, and, and to make our profession better. One of the big things I'm going to do is, is mentoring. And, and I... I Mostly I have a lot of Puerto Rican students, but I have a lot of minority students from around the U.S. that I have met throughout conferences or SAFMAS or through DEI Commission. And, and, and that's part of what I want to continue to to see that voice, that, that message that you need to be active. You need to be active to make the profession better, to make the world better. It's up on each one of us to to do that. And and if not, we're, we're, we're doing a disservice to the profession. It's like my hero... Roberto Clemente once said, if you don't do, do something to make this world a better place, you're wasting your time on this earth. And I really think the way he, Roberto Clemente thought, we benefited from, from being part of a great profession. And what I, we got to give back. We got to help our clients. We got to help, you know, get our profession to, to, to the underserved areas. We got to help with access to care. There's so many issues that still need to be solved. You know, all that we talked about in this podcast. And it's upon each one of you to to make that change and to and to fight for for our profession and and to fight for relevance in, in so politicians understand how important veterinary medicine and how helpful it can be to to society. So yeah, we, we have to do it. It's very important, and the future of our profession depends on us getting involved, getting that voice heard. And for those youngsters out there who don't know who Roberto Clemente was, he wore number 21 and played outfield for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was one of the best hitters in his era, and he died 
I think it was New Year's Eve on a right. plane crash that was a philanthropic plane crash delivering food to underserved communities. That's who Roberto Clemente is, and that's who Jose Arce is as well. And I think it's also important to say to our young listeners that there is a time for giving back. There is a time for taking care of yourself as well. And if you can give back throughout your entire career, fine. But take care of yourself first and make sure you reserve a part of your life for, for giving back. Don't feel guilty when you can't right now because you may still be developing or building yourself or taking care of yourself. But life is longer than you think. Well said. <laughs> Tell me about it. Hey, Dr. Arce, thank you for your time, your insights, your vision, and thank you for your contributions to the veterinary profession in the past, the present, and into the future. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Phil. And same to you. You guys are also make a huge difference in our profession, and we got to continue trucking. Well, it's an honor to have you as a friend and as a member of this profession. And thank you for accepting our invitation to Courageous Conversations. My pleasure, it was fun. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.